So we are uh, continuing our series today in Galatians, Jesus plus nothing. Uh, we come to chapter 3, and we're going to begin today by going directly to the text, and I'm going to read the first 25 verses of chapter 3. Uh, I think it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, if so, please follow along as I read. By the way, I'll mention to you that I'm reading from the NIV uh, 1984 version. I hope that's what they have up there. But if there are any uh, discrepancies, that would be why. Uh, here's what we find. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. The mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, 
so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Let's say amen to the word of God. By the way, is anybody else in here cold? I knew this was a mistake. I'm cold, so could we go up a degree or two, uh, those of you who are near the uh, temperature control? A degree or two. The warm ones should be able to tolerate it. The cold ones will feel much better. So, thank you. All right. Obviously, there is so much in these 25 verses we read that there's no way I, that, that we can go into detail in all of these, with all of these verses today. Uh, but I'm going to highlight the things that I believe God impressed upon uh, my heart to highlight. Throughout the book of Galatians, we have observed a conflict between two ways of approaching God. The way of the law and the way of faith. The Judaizers said that to be right with God, in addition to believing in Jesus, the Gentile believers needed to observe Jewish traditions and customs. As we've talked about multiple times within the series, they were particularly concerned that the Gentile men be circumcised and that all Gentiles observe the law. Paul was adamantly opposed to this approach to God because Paul knew that the way of faith was superior to the way of law. Paul knew that the good news really was Jesus plus nothing. Paul knew what had been revealed to him by Christ, that people are saved by grace through faith. And Paul knew that the way of law observance as a way of being justified before God was an altered gospel, was a perversion of the gospel, which was actually no gospel at all. And so these two ways of approaching God are in conflict. And again, here in chapter 3, Paul continues writing about this conflict between law and faith by comparing and contrasting the two. He asked the Galatians if they received the Spirit by observing the law, or if they had received it by believing the gospel that had been preached to them. Paul asked them if after beginning in the Spirit, are they now trying to attain their goal through human effort? And he asked if the miracles God worked among them were a result of observing the law or because they had believed on the Lord Jesus. These are rhetorical questions. The answer in each case is that they had received everything they had received from God by faith, not by observing the law. This should have been so obvious to the Galatians that it's understandable that Paul uses rather strong language in his writing that we just looked at today. You get the sense, at least I do, that Paul is a bit exasperated by their rejection of the gospel. 
And so I want to start today by looking at some of the strong language that Paul uses. In verse 1, Paul refers to the Galatians as you foolish Galatians. He must have just finished reading How to Win Friends and Influence People. He was, he was really persuaded by the book, and so he writes, You foolish Galatians. Then again in verse 3, Are you so foolish? After beginning in the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? He tells them very clearly that rejecting faith for law is foolish. Rejecting the gospel of Jesus plus nothing for the not a gospel of Jesus plus circumcision plus law keeping, it's foolish. You foolish Galatians. Now, we need to be clear about what Paul is saying and not saying by calling them foolish. Paul is not suggesting that the Galatians are mentally deficient. He is not suggesting that. But what he is saying is that they are being mentally lazy and that they are being careless. They're being careless. The believers in Galatia weren't stupid, but they had failed to use their spiritual intelligence when faced with an adjusted gospel. The perverted gospel which was no gospel at all that the Judaizers were teaching. Friends, we have to be mentally alert. Mentally alert. We need to always be mentally on our toes. Because the day that we live in, really like every age, the day that we live in faces the same types of challenges they faced in Galatia. We face challenges to the gospel of Christ. And if we are not careful in our thinking, if we allow ourselves to become lazy in our thinking, if we don't apply spiritual intelligence to the challenges to the gospel that come our way, we are going to end up embracing things that are false. Things that pervert the gospel. And turn it from good news to just another false teaching that leads people away from Jesus. Whether legalism, which we've talked about a lot in this series and really is Paul's concern in Galatia. Or antinomianism, which really was not the concern in Galatia, but it's, a, it's another challenge to the gospel. Whether adding things to the gospel or saying that God's cool with things that God isn't actually cool with, we are faced with many challenges to the gospel in our day. And so we have to stay mentally alert in order to not be taken in by these things. Legalism, the prosperity gospel, universalism, calling sinful practices pleasing to God, whatever form the adjustments to the gospel take, we must be people who are alert and we must reject these false gospels. The Galatians were mentally lazy. And so Paul rightly calls them what they are for rejecting faith for law. 
you foolish Galatians. And if, like them, we embrace adjustments to the gospel, we too are being foolish. And friends, there is a lot of foolishness that is happening within the so-called Church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America. A lot of foolishness. In verse 1, Paul writes, you foolish Galatians, and then he asks a question. Who has bewitched you? Can any of you hear that word without thinking of Darren <laughs> from bewitched? Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. The gospel that Jesus died for your sins was so clearly presented to you and you received it, Paul is saying. What in the world happened to now cause you to reject the gospel for law? And Paul tells them what happened. They were bewitched. They were bewitched. Now, that word sounds like they were the victims of some type of sorcery, but that's not really the meaning of the word. The idea with this word bewitched is that the Galatians had been flattered. They'd been taken in by false promises. They have succumbed to feeling over fact, to emotion over clear understanding of the truth. They aren't the victims of a spell they were misled pupils of teachings that they should have instantly recognized as false. They were willing victims who succumbed to the flesh-pleasing works of righteousness that the Judaizers were presenting. They had been persuaded that faith wasn't enough, that something was lacking that could be fulfilled by returning to the ceremonies and the requirements of the law. Why might someone want to reject the true gospel for a works-based righteousness? I think one of the most obvious answers is pride. Pride. We want to earn our way. We want to be recognized for being good people. Our entire lives reinforce the viewpoint that if we do good, we'll be approved. And if we do bad, we'll be disapproved. And so the Galatians and people today, we convince ourselves that we can impress God. That if we just help enough little old ladies across the street, God will be pleased with us and let us into heaven. That if we do more good things than bad things, God is going to be impressed. And we're going to be okay when we meet the big guy. We go so far with this that we even have thoughts like this. Well, you know, even if I don't do more good things than bad things, even if the bad things outweigh the good things, but I can at least find a few people in the Tri-County area 
who have done worse things than me, then by comparison, I'm going to look pretty good and God is going to be pleased with me. God's going to recognize that I'm doing a lot better than others. Now, we can laugh at this. Intellectually, we can reject this. But we battle this in our lives. We battle this. This kind of thinking is insidious. It is pervasive. Even among people who intellectually know that it is wrong. I will admit to seeing this at work in my own life. I think if many of you are honest, you do too. Secret thoughts like this. Well, I know I'm not everything I should be, but I sure am doing better than fill in the blank. You see that, right, God? You agree with that, right, God? I'm doing pretty good, right, God? It is easy to be bewitched, to allow our emotions to carry us away into wrong ways of thinking that cause us to embrace alterations to the gospel and begin trusting in human effort and merit rather than trusting fully in Jesus for our justification with God. We add to the gospel, and when we do, we make it no gospel at all. William Hendrickson said this, this is a great line, William Hendrickson, a supplemented Christ is a supplanted Christ. A supplemented Christ is a supplanted Christ. And it's so true. When we add to Jesus plus nothing, we don't supplement Christ, we supplant him. We supplant him. The Judaizers had supplanted Christ with the law. And throughout chapter 3, Paul demonstrates the futility of the Judaizers' message by highlighting the futility of law-based salvation and by explaining the true purpose of the law. The law cannot save, but it does have a very clear purpose. So let's see what Paul writes, what he told the Galatians, and what he tells us about the law. Paul makes it very clear here in chapter 3 that the law has no power to save. The law cannot save. Paul exposes a weakness in the salvation by law observance approach of the Judaizers in verses 10 and 12. Verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Paul there is referring to Deuteronomy 27, 26, which says essentially the same thing. Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Paul in Galatians and Deuteronomy 27, 26 both highlight why the law can't save. It's because the law requires perfection. If you're going to save yourself by law observance, the standard is perfection. Do 
everything written in the book of the law. No mistakes, no oopsies, do everything. Not one weak link in the chain. The whole chain has to be strong. Do it all. And no one can do that except Jesus Christ who did it. The Judaizers couldn't do it. Paul couldn't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. The law requires perfection and none of us can meet the exacting standards of the law. Verse 12 reiterates this. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Paul's essentially saying, if you're going to turn from faith to law, you had better be able to fully satisfy the moral demands of the law. Which again, none of us can do. And so trying to earn salvation by observing the law is futile. It cannot be done. And so Paul writes in verse 10 that those relying on the law are under a curse. People bring a curse on themselves by trying to earn salvation. They commit themselves to an approach to salvation that has no hope of success. None. And so they leave themselves hopelessly condemned before God. I think curse is a great word to describe that situation. The law cannot save because we cannot keep the law. The law cannot save and that was never the purpose of the law. But the law does have a purpose. And let's see what Paul writes about the purpose of the law. Look at verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. Now what that essentially means is that the purpose of the law was to demonstrate to mankind our sinfulness. The purpose of the law was to show us, to demonstrate to us, our inability to please God through our good works. The law was added to show mankind the depths of our transgressions against God to get us to understand our sinfulness, to get us to understand our sinful condition. The law shows us what God requires so that we can look at the law and then we can look at our lives and we can come to the conclusion that we are unable to do that. In fact, we are much better at doing the very things God does not want us to do, which is sin. We're all very skillful at that. The law shows us our sinfulness. And it actually goes beyond that. It shows us our sinfulness, but the law also reveals to us that we are actually prisoners of sin. We're prisoners of sin. Look at verses 22 and 23. The scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. 
so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The whole world is a prisoner of sin. And then verse 23, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. To be a prisoner is to lose freedom. To be a prisoner is to lose control over your own life. In saying people are prisoners of sin, Paul is saying they have lost their freedom. Sin has imprisoned them. He's saying they have lost control. They don't control sin. Sin controls them. And the law is meant to reveal this to us. That left to ourselves, we have lost the battle with sin. We are now controlled by it. And people often object to this. But all it really takes is an honest inventory of our lives to reveal that without the power of God, we really do not do well against sin. And if a person objects to the idea that they're a prisoner of sin, there's an easy way to find out. Stop sinning. You stop it. If, if you're under control, if you're not controlled by it, if you're not imprisoned by it, then you should just be able to stop. How's that worked? Well, it's worked for me. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. Paul is making the case over and over that the law wasn't meant to save. It was meant to reveal the depth of our sin problem. It was meant to demonstrate to us how utterly sinful we are, how controlled by sin we are, how powerless against sin we are. And the law was meant to do all of this toward a very specific purpose. And that's what we find in verse 24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law can't save. It was never meant to save. The entire purpose of the law was to convince us that salvation through human effort is impossible so that we would give up on that misguided plan and look for another way of salvation. The law was meant to reveal to us that we can't save ourselves. So that we would come to the realization that we need someone else who can be our champion. Someone else who can save us. The law was put in charge to lead us to Jesus. So that we would be justified by faith in him. The law doesn't save, it leads us to the Savior. When we understand the law, when we understand our inability to live according to it, it should cause us to conclude we need a Savior. It should cause us to turn to Christ in faith, and that is the entire purpose of the law. And because of that, the righteous do not live by the law. The righteous live by faith. People don't become righteous by observing the law. They are declared righteous through faith in Jesus. And Paul convincingly shows us that in Galatians 3. He writes in verse 6, 
consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was counted righteous by God when Abraham believed, not when Abraham was circumcised. In fact, I believe, the theologians in the crowd can check me on this and report back to me later, not now, but <laughs> I think it was about 14 years from the time that Abraham believed God to the point when God instructed Abraham to be circumcised. Abraham was righteous every one of those 14 years because God credited him as righteous when he believed. Understand that Abraham predates the law. He was credited as righteous by God before the law even came into being. And here's why. Because faith has always been what pleases God. It's always been what pleases God. No one has ever been saved apart from faith. Even those who lived under the law and observed it as meticulously as humanly possible, they were never saved by law. Always by faith. Galatians 3.11 Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. And that's a quotation of, I believe it's Habakkuk 2.4. In Isaiah 29.13 the Lord himself offers this lament. These people, God says, Come near to me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Observing rules while having hearts that are far from God has always displeased God. It's never been about the rule keeping. It has always been about the heart and faith in God. Faith predates the law. The law was meant to lead us to faith. And even those who lived under the law and obeyed it meticulously, they were displeasing to God unless their law observance flowed out of a heart of faith. Justification has always been by grace through faith. It's always been. Galatians 3, 8 and 9. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Faith was God's plan with Abraham. Faith was God's plan for the Gentiles. And faith has always been God's plan. From Abraham to our present day, justification is by grace through faith. And we're able to be saved by grace through faith 
because of Jesus. Look at verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel. What Adam and Eve could not do, what the heroes of the faith could not do, what the Judaizers could not do, what Paul and Peter could not do, what Billy Graham could not do, and what none of us could do. Live in perfect obedience to God's moral demands. What no one else could do, Jesus did. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God. He lived a life of sinless perfection, fully performing the righteous demands of the law. And because he did this, the Bible teaches that he was able to stand in our place and pay the penalty our sin had earned. The wages of sin is death. He fully paid the debt of sin that we owed. Freeing us from the debt if we'll simply believe in him and what he's done for us. The guiltless died for the guilty. Substitutionary atonement is what the theologians call it. He took our place, he paid our penalty, and he reconciled us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange, Jesus becomes sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Here's the good news that saves. Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us. For you. Jesus died for me. And so Paul said to the Galatians, and he says to us today, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? The answer is clear. They received the Spirit. They were counted righteous by God by believing what they heard about Jesus who was crucified for their sins. Here is the faith that pleases God. God says to each of us here today, your sin is a real problem. That you need to quit ignoring, overlooking, and making excuses for. God says to us today, your sin has separated you from me. And I've been really clear in my word that the wages of sin 
is death. God says to us, you're trying to save yourself by pleasing me through your own efforts, by doing more good things than bad things, by comparing yourself to worse sinners than yourself. But none of that will work. You're not capable of living a good enough life to earn your way with me because you have already messed up too bad. Your debt is insurmountable. God goes on and says to us, but I sent Jesus to do what you couldn't and can't do. He lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to me. Because he did, he was able to fully satisfy the sin debt of every person who's ever lived, including you. I permitted my one and only son to pay your penalty. And God says to us today, here's my offer to you. If you will accept the truth about yourself, that you can't save yourself. And if you'll believe the truth about my son Jesus, that he died for your sins and salvation is available to you. If you'll simply believe in him and what he's done for you. You'll be saved. God says to us, I promise you, you can't save yourself, but you can be saved by simply having faith in my son Jesus. God says to us, believe what I'm telling you like Abraham believed what I told him and you'll be saved. The good news, Jesus died for our sins. If you can believe that and trust your life to Jesus, reject self-justification and accept that you need a Savior and then turn to Jesus in faith, that's how a person is saved. Jesus explained it as succinctly as it can be explained in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The good news, Jesus died for us. The good news, the righteous live by faith. I appeal to each and every one of us here today to reject the temptation toward works-based salvation and live by faith in the Son of God. Why don't you stand?